Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Bitcoin miners. Why have they settled in BC small towns? And why is Victoria wanting to put the brakes on Bitcoin mining? Plus, a man leads police on a low-speed chase with a stolen John Deere tractor. We speak to the officer involved in the hour-long chase with speeds hitting a blistering 32 kilometers per hour. And our Friday rap panel discusses the new two drinks a week recommendation. Is it the right thing to do or just more rules from puritanical killjoys? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk about your commute home and more importantly, fueling up. I don't know if you've noticed, but gas prices have been inching up again. Uh, there's been, there was a significant drop, as you recall, over the November and December period. I think it was about 11 cents a liter. Uh, it's about a buck seventy. I think this morning as I was driving in, I certainly thought better days for 2023 when I was thinking about um, that 11 cent drop in December. Well, today I saw an article saying gas prices could potentially hit as high as $2 and 65 cents a litre by the summer right here in Metro Vancouver. When you see numbers like that, I thought it was time to catch up with our uh, good friend Dan McTagg. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He always uh, sets us straight. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Joe, good to be here. Thank you. So walk me through. It was just one newspaper article, but I wanted to get your lay of the land. Are we headed towards uh, higher, significantly higher prices? I think we're heading towards higher permanent prices, not significantly where you have a situation where it you know, moves up to 265 and then comes right down. I think 250 is a number that I'm starting to think is uh, within the realm of possibility as far as uh, more average, so 240, 250, rather than you know, the sort of sudden dramatic increase to that level. Now, of course, there are a number of variables and too many to count, but you know, pipeline disruption south of the border... Uh, higher taxes, uh, including carbon taxes, uh, and of course a uh, continuation. It would have been a long, long story of then drawn out back and forth battle jazz of, you know, uh, inventories uh, for gasoline, for oil being somewhat lower uh, than, uh, than ideal. And so that puts, you know, the potential for those prices to move up uh, from where they are now, the, you know, low 180s. By the way, we're getting a two cent increase overnight to 182.9, another two cent increase to about 184.9 come Sunday. So just be aware of that. Getting back to $2 a litre is a no brainer, likely to happen over the next uh, two or three weeks. That fast? Yeah, I think uh, markets are starting to realize that uh, they've run out of excuses. You can't continue to think there's you know, demand destruction out there, uh, uh, US Fed uh, interest rates rising. Uh, you know, COVID lockdowns in China, all of these things uh, have really had the proverbial bears running the show over the past few months. But again, fundamentally, there is a distinct reality that there is a shortage or at least tightness in global supplies of crude, diesel, and to a lesser extent, gasoline. We're also heading into maintenance uh, season. And a lot of refineries are going to be starting to, you know, take less oil, start to produce less fuel, 
And, of course, uh, we could start to see prices moving up. I'm not thinking radically, but by the end of the month, uh, at least, uh, you know, very feasibly, another 10 cents a litre, quiet for February, and then March, April, and May, uh, that major, you know, 30 cents, 35, maybe even 40 cents increase, especially given that the variables that we are not able to predict, you know, does the Trans Mountain Pipeline existing one shut down for a period of time does the cologne does the sorry the uh, olympic pipeline go through longer than expected maintenance do we have one or two refinery upsets we've talked about that you and i so many times mm-hmm. uh you know south of the border any of these could uh, could drive prices up 265 i think that's uh, that's an outlier i'm not sure where it comes from i hope it's not for me because i certainly didn't say it would go that high but permanent uh you know for the very remainder of the year i see two dollars a liter here in Vancouver as the new normal. Uh, We have had at least a a reduction in the inflation rate in December. A lot of that was driven by not food prices coming down in any significant way. I think it actually went up by 0.3%. It was actually gasoline and oil prices, oil and gas prices dropping at that time. Uh, When you tell me that we're heading heading to $2 a litre and potentially higher as we get into the summer and uh, months or so, that's not going to help remotely when it comes to our fight against inflation. No, it's not helpful at all. But the uh, silver lining for me has been, uh, you know, the the lone and solitary voice saying the connection between higher inflation and higher interest rates has a lot to do with the cost of energy. Most notably, the energy that we all think we can transition away from, but which the world is going to want a lot more of. And, you know, people don't have to like what I have to say, um, but they can't ignore the always, uh, you know, uh, uh, ready to talk about stopping the production of fossil fuels. International Energy Agency, the Royal Bank. Uh, I saw something uh, from Jody, which is the the, uh, OPEX uh, analysis arm. Uh, and I would have to even sort of underline that, underscore that with the Energy Information Agency of the United States Department of Energy saying, look, uh, we are going to see global demand hit 102 million barrels a day uh, from where it is now, about 99 to uh, you know 100 million barrels used a day. The world is going to be using more, not less hydrocarbons. And I think it's just something we're going to have to get used to as uh, developing parts of the world are uh, saying uh, we want in, we want to enjoy, and uh, the only way to get there is using uh, you know products like diesel, jet fuel, uh, stove oil, furnace oil, uh, natural gas, and the like. Uh, we've talked about Ukraine and, and sort of the geopolitical disruption that's out there, but one could argue that a lot of this is also just structural, that a, we haven't built refineries, enough refineries in this country. We have been, as you say, trying to get rid of the oil and gas industry a lot faster than than actually that we actually need. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, we still rely on natural gas. We still rely on fossil fuels. It's going to take a long time to make that energy transition. It, it, do, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes decades and decades and decades. A lot of this, to me, seems, forget about Ukraine, just incredibly... Um, it, it's, it's self-inflicted and structural. Yes, I would say the past eight or nine years has seen a significant deliberate uh, attempt at divesting, uh, removing under so-called ESG mandates, environmental, social, and governance uh, moves to, as it were, you know, discourage um, those who are investing in and those who are producing uh, the kind of products that the world continues not just to need now, but is going to need it for the foreseeable future. And, of course, the next few years are demonstrating that. So here you have a policy, uh, a belief that we can do without, 
that we should do without. And yet, uh, you know, people are voting with their <laughs> with their uh, their vehicles, with their jets, with their rail, with their vessels on the high seas. This is not going to go away anytime soon. And I think the sooner we begin to accept the reality that uh, the transition is, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years rather than trying to, you know, to put a date in the minds of everyone and say we have to meet that come hell or high water, mm-hmm. I think uh, it would make it a lot easier, I think, and less disruptive and less uh, less costly for Canadians to be able to manage. But uh, these mandates are extraordinarily expensive. And uh, however, we like to, that investment has had a negative impact on the bottom line for the entire global economy. Now, many people have argued this is going to go off. Uh, it's not, we're, not, we're still talking about gas prices, but some of those gas prices are based on carbon taxes, in which you have talked about uh, uh, today and you have talked about in the past as well. Do you think that we should be putting a price on carbon? Uh, I mean, I, many have said this is the best way to do things, although in this environment, uh, it, it's very tough for um, motorists to swallow. Do you think we should still be heading in that direction in regards to having a carbon tax? Never mind increasing it or freezing it or decreasing it. Do you think there is still a value to a carbon tax? No, because it doesn't work. Carbon emissions are not dropping. And of course, we're talking COVID lockdowns as we've seen in Canada. But to achieve a seven percent drop in uh, in you know in our emissions uh, during the period of COVID basically means we have to shut down. Our entire economy, and I mean nothing moves. You should just stay at home, uh, use your electric stove, um, you know, and uh, hope that we're not using any type of uh, products or energy derived from, uh, you know, gas or oil. Uh, I think it would be a far better move, and I think Europeans have suggested this given their experience now with the war in Ukraine, that we have to see natural gas as a transition um, as a transition fuel. Like it or not, these are the things that are going to help you reduce your so-called carbon footprint. Uh, I don't think it's helpful to Canadians to beat themselves up uh, and or less pretend that driving an electric vehicle is somehow carbon-free. We know that the production is extraordinarily damaging to the environment, whether that be the battery, whether that be the uh, the acids that are used or the processing uh, in, in creating a, a battery. Uh, we also know that you know solar panels, uh, uh, we also know that uh, windmills, none of those things occur without exceedingly intense amounts of processing, production, extraction, mining, all of which require a lot, the use of a lot more fossil fuels. So I think we're kidding ourselves when we think, well, we can you know, simply ban the internal combustion engine. Uh, blame that as the reason we have a higher you know, a degree of carbon out there. But we also, I think, the bigger point, let's get more of our natural gas to you know, places in the world that are going to be a threat and continue to raise the amount of carbon that they emit. China, that's not pointing fingers, you know, the Chinas, the Indonesias, mm-hmm. uh, of course, uh, India, and, and, and the list goes on. So I think that's where Canada can play an important role. We have a prime minister that says, oh, no, we haven't got anything for you. Uh, you know, we might be able to provide you some technologies on minerals, Japan, just in case you want to, you know, for your batteries, or we tell the Germans that uh, we'll give them hydrogen. I think that's just, uh, that's just you know, very poor optics and uh, followed by very poor public policy. I think the prime minister missed a golden opportunity because, Australia, Oman, Qatar, United States, our friends to the South are only too happy to hear that kind of nonsense because uh, they're going to take advantage of it and they're going to make billions of dollars in, uh, in economic activity that we have uh, simply foregone as a result of our wokeness. Yeah, you're absolutely right in regards to uh, the six more LNG plants planned in the United States. Uh, just just in that country alone, they've already built seven and they were started with zero just like us at about 2012, I believe. Dan, thank you for your time. Jazz, it's a pleasure. Have a great weekend. 
By now, we've all heard about Bitcoin. Put simply, it's digital currency. But where does it come from? It requires uh, Bitcoin mining. Now, mining is the process that Bitcoin and several other cryptocurrencies use to generate new coins and verify new transactions. It involves vast decentralized networks of computers around the world that verify and secure blockchains. Those are the virtual ledgers that document cryptocurrency transactions. Now, in return for contributing their processing power, computers on the network are rewarded with new new coins. Now, what's interesting about all this is that Bitcoin mining firms have set up shop in BC, in many cases taking over old commercial sites in forestry towns, right here in British Columbia, in the interior and the north. Well, our next guest has written about Bitcoin in a new article called Gold Rush 2.0. You can find the article on the TIE website. Joining me now is Amanda Follett-Hoskud. She is the Northern BC reporter for the TIE. Amanda, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for uh, having me. So uh, t- tell me, uh, when you first started investigating uh, the this Bitcoin mining, were you expecting it to be as as big as it actually is? Um, yeah, I hadn't heard anything about it up until, you know, maybe mid-December. I was kind of coasting into the holidays. I was looking into some forestry stuff, mm-hmm. and I, I began reading about how these Bitcoin operations were setting up on old mill sites, and that was completely news to me. I mean, I don't you, you just explained it beautifully, but I didn't really have any understanding of Bitcoin or how it worked, and to me it was this kind of ethereal thing that took place in the cloud. So I found it fascinating that these Bitcoin operators were interested in setting up in some of our more remote little old mill towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and have they given you a reason why uh, they like uh, some of these smaller forestry towns? Yeah, so basically these operations, they, they have these massive computers that are inside these big warehouses. And what they're looking for is sufficient space a power supply, and an internet connection. Um, And then the appealing thing about BC is that we have 98% renewable energy, so they can market their operations as being more environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and give me a sense, and I'm not an engineer, and neither you are a technical person, but but the amount of power that they use is quite significant, isn't it? It is, yeah. So at one point, a couple of years ago, the province had um, inquiries from Bitcoin operators that totaled 2,000 megawatts. And to put that into perspective, our entire provincial supply uh, at the moment is about 12,000 megawatts, so about a sixth of our entire electricity supply. And uh, as I was, I was actually in the midst of looking into this in late December, and then the province made this announcement that they were going to pause all new cryptocurrency connections while they reevaluated the industry and, and, you know, the role it would play in BC. Uh, you said 2,000 megawatts, and the total amount of power uh, in this province, as you say, produces about 12,000. And I think even uh, Site C, which is there, there's been tremendous amount of debate controversy uh, uh, in, the, in our province, even that uh, dam, which is significant in size and in cost, I think right now it's just over $20 billion to build it, even that I think is about 1,100 megawatts, so it gives you a sense yeah. that the entire uh, Bitcoin mining industry would take and use all of that power 
if 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 required. Um, what is the industries? Have you have any of the industry players said anything to you about whether what they think of this uh, this decision by the provincial government to 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 put a, a hold on any more uh, expansion at this point? Yeah, so I spoke with Daniel Roberts, and he's um, he's a CEO with Iris Energy, which is based in Australia. They have three of BC's currently operating seven um, cryptocurrency operations, and they kind of came in with this idea of, like, we're going to provide a consistent... Um, you know, a, a market for your power supply. We're going to buy your power supply. We'll bring down overall costs for average rate payers. Um, so that it kind of puts a damper on, on their whole premise of being here in BC. But I think they also kind of got in a few years ago before there was this flood of inquiries. So Daniel told me that he, he understands that they want to be here, you know, like using excess power supply, not creating problems. Um, and he says they're happy to work with the province to see how things progress moving forward. And the province has said they'll take the next 18 months to create some sort of a framework for the industry. Uh, I, think, I, I think that, too, that, that provides them with a little bit of a, you know, a little more certainty to these organizations that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Has any other province done what BC's done, which is sort of to, to step back just for 18 months to reassess the lay of the land a little bit? Have other provinces done what we've done? Yeah, Manitoba announced something similar in the fall, so they're undergoing a similar process. Uh, Quebec has done it previously, and they came back with higher rates for cryptocurrency operations and a cap on how much electricity can be dedicated to those operations. Uh, I'm curious, uh, as you were saying, that you know uh, that we do have uh, lots of clean power in this province, excess power at this point, but as these cryptocurrency mining operations grow, you have, I guess you have to take that into consideration with even an LNG industry that may wish to expand. Uh, LNG mm-hmm. Canada is already talking about um, expanding after they've finished their first to um, their their main operation, the two trains, and building another two trains after that, and they want to run on electric drive, which is going to require more power, a significant mm-hmm. amount of power for those big operations. And you add to that, uh, you know, our listeners uh, who are probably the next vehicle the family may buy, maybe an electric vehicle, maybe a Tesla, mm-hmm. maybe something else. The drain on our on our grid is uh, not just from industrial projects, but just from uh, you know the energy transition is going to be significant. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's the argument, you know, do we want to dedicate, and, and I mean, excess, I think it's interesting to note too, that this announcement came right in the midst of our cold snap in December, mm-hmm. when we were using 10, more than 10,000 of those 12,000 available megawatts. Um, but then, yeah, the argument of, do we want to dedicate that extra power to an industry that, you know, is, is a little bit, ethereal and and maybe doesn't provide an obvious service to residents or do we want to save it for greening the existing economy allowing people to move to electric vehicles that kind of thing did you visit any of these facilities yourself i haven't yet no um there is one in houston about an hour from where i live Mm -hmm. and you know i'd love to get out to the one in prince george one of these days i think it you know from the photos they really do look you know 
pretty high tech and intimidating. These like big towering interiors full of wires. So I think it would be a really neat thing to check out. And I guess with the cooler temperatures compared to uh, in the winter time, it does probably help with uh, uh, just uh, the cooling that is required for some of these facilities as well. And then you've got these industrial sites, and they they actually work quite well for the needs of the industry. Yep, that's another another attraction to BC is the cooler temperatures and uh, and you know another thing that they say is that they're recycling some of that heat to heat buildings as well. Mm. Do they hire? Do these facilities have a lot of employees, or is is it like a lot of tech uh, tech industry? A lot of it is done without actual people. Mm-hmm. They do. Um, you know, the, the three facilities that Iris Energy has, they employ between fifteen and twenty full-time positions each. Um, And I spoke to a couple of small-town mayors in Mackenzie and Canal Flats, and they both told me that they're happy to take the jobs. You know, I think on the local level, these operations are pretty um, low-impact, and they said that Iris Energy is a good corporate citizen. They contribute to the tax base. um, They offer community grants and that kind of thing. So they're happy to have them. yeah, it obviously doesn't replace some of the, the jobs that have been lost and things like the forest industry. No, absolutely. You may lose 300 jobs in Prince George at the Canfor uh, mill shutting down, but if you can at least get 40 or 50 or 60 jobs at some of these other facilities, it helps mm-hmm. a little bit. So I can understand why uh, local mayors would be very much uh, interested in attracting more of these Bitcoin mining firms. Amanda, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to having you on again. Yeah, thanks for the chat, Jeff. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Let's talk salmon farming. The Discovery Islands are a group of islands between Vancouver Island and, and mainland. Now, the 19 fish farms on the Discovery Islands are controversial because most Fraser River salmon must pass the farms on their migration route. Well, open-net farms are cage-like structures. They're suspended in the ocean, and they make up a sizable industry here in B.C. Farmed Atlantic salmon in B.C. is B.C.'s top agriculture and seafood uh, and beverage export, accounting for over $500 million in sales. Now, scientists and First Nation leaders have raised concerns about open-net pan-Atlantic salmon farms here in B.C. B.C. waters and due to the risk posed to wild salmon populations. Now, the fate of those 19 salmon licenses in BC's Discovery Islands will be decided sometime uh, this month. Um, Canada's new fisheries minister, Joyce Murray, said that she would revisit the decision this month and conduct consultations with First Nations communities and current uh, license holders in the Discovery Islands. Joining me to talk about this pending decision is Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, thank you for joining us today. Well, I'm happy to be able to be on your show. Walk our audience through the importance of this decision, and to my understanding, standing, it's it should be coming very quickly from the federal government. Yes, the decision on Discovery Islands is scheduled to be sometime in January uh, this month, of course. And the importance of it in relationship to Fraser River salmon 
is 90% of the salmon that leave the river and out migration go past and through the Discovery Islands. And knowing that the Johnstone Straits is like a funnel, this is the bottom end of the funnel, so it allows for the greatest accumulation of disease pathogens, sea lice, in highly stratified waters. Mm-hmm. How many uh, salmon farms are we talking about here? I believe there's 19, but there's I think there's 16 or 17 that are in question for this decision. And it's time to enact uh, the precautionary principle given that the uh, Canadian Science Advisory Secretary has been so harshly criticized as extremely biased and definitely has a conflict of interest with industry's involvement. And so when we have a mountain of science from true peer-reviewed processes, uh, this is the perfect scenario or the exact scenario for the DFO minister to use an existing tool in the Fisheries Act and protect the Fraser River salmon. Mm-hmm. How hopeful are you that the decision from the federal government will come down uh, to your side? Of course, you clearly don't want uh, these uh, uh, salmon farms there. How confident are you that the government agrees with your argument? Well, there have been many First Nations across the province of BC that have voiced their concerns and support for the Liberal government to transition fish farms from the oceans. So we're talking about food security of 90% of the First Nations across BC. So not only will we see uh, a decision on Discovery Islands, but it's going to also see how meaningfully uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government is willing to take meaningful steps to enact UN Declaration of Rights Indigenous People and the reconciliation goals that he has committed to Canadians. Mm-hmm. Do you worry, uh, well, it's not even worry, some have said that the, the federal government, uh, in a spirit of compromise, uh, may say, wait a minute here, uh, we are going to remove open net pens or work towards perhaps uh, removing open net pens uh, but right now, we're going to try to minimize the interaction between farmed and wild fish, uh, trying to find sort of new innovations uh, in technology and processes with fish farms. So they won't shut them down, as you had hoped for, but saying let's work towards uh, keeping them open, but try to minimize that interaction or work towards the use and innovation of greater technology. Uh, would that be considered somewhat of a win for you, or do you think that the, this is just heading in the right, wrong direction if the government does come in with, well, some, would, some would argue, a compromise? Well, that sort of compromise is will be unacceptable in terms of protecting the wild salmon runs. Uh, I was part of the negotiation team with the provincial government when we implemented the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People in the Broughton Archipelago. And we thoroughly examined the semi-enclosed fish farms and outright dismissed them. And the reason is there is no filtering of disease pathogens that get released into the water. And so that is the primary uh, concern, is the passing on of disease and pathogens which have a detrimental effect at the population level of salmon. So it's time to not focus on sustaining an industry, but sustaining Pacific wild salmon for all British Columbians and the environment and all the economy that's based upon healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks. Uh, There's been talk about um, closed containment technology um, when it comes to some of these large-scale aquaculture um, operations. Would they work? 
Well, land-based closed containment is taking off globally. Uh, there's an industry pump, uh, publication called Intrafish, and they started to have a monthly update on the fastest-growing sector of aquaculture globally, and this is land-based closed containment. Now, I don't think that the protection of salmon should be hinged upon the ability to transition this industry to land-based closed containment because the, the dire situation that is Fraser River salmon primarily is so critical where we've had historic low returns. Last year, there was a 50% uh, loss of the target that did not return. Mm-hmm. And those are the salmon, when they left the rivers, experienced Discovery Islands in full operation. So this coming year, um, we'll be able to see what the returns will be with the absence, but we'll also be able to see that once we strategically get out of the way, as we did in the Broughton Archipelago, we'll see healthy and abundant salmon runs return. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to go back to my original question. So this decision, uh, this report, would, would come out in, in literally the next week or so, week and a half. Yes, that's, uh, that's what we're anticipating. Bob, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to chatting with you soon when a decision does come down, and we'll talk then. Thanks so much. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to the show. Now, tell me, when I say police chase, I love this music, when I say police chase, what goes through your mind? O.J. Simpson and the White Bronco, or maybe one of those helicopter shots that you see sometimes from Los Angeles with police in hot pursuit? Well, recently a different type of police chase occurred in Boone County, North Carolina. Uh, As footage has been making the rounds on social media, you certainly wouldn't call it a high-speed chase, that's for sure, more like a low-speed chase. Well, on Tuesday morning, get this, Boone County Police received several calls about a man who was erratically driving a John Deere tractor. Ronnie Hicks, who's 43 years old, was driving the stolen tractor in a parking lot, attempting to hit pedestrians in several vehicles, according to police. Well, police got that call. For more, we're joined by Andy LeBeau, Chief of Police from the Boone County Police Department. Chief, thank you for joining us. Yes, good to be here. Uh, walk me through, how did this chase start? Well, a, a local man, uh, every, every city or town has individuals that all of the police officers know by first name basis. And this guy was one of those guys. We're all familiar with him. And uh, he has a history of getting in trouble. And uh, he uh, he broke into a man's barn. Uh, outside of town and, and uh, stole his tractor, and then he decided to drive his tractor to town. And, and, and I guess that's when you you or your department got the phone call? Yeah, we got a telephone call that he was chasing people on the tractor. And uh, so we we work in inside of a, uh, a small city, and even though we're in the mountains of North Carolina, we typically don't have tractors driving around in the city, so... Our officers went out there to investigate, and sure enough, they find uh, Mr. Hicks uh, riding around on the streets in a tractor. And they all, everybody knows Mr. Hicks, so we knew he didn't have a tractor, so we, we knew it was obviously stolen or, or borrowed. And uh, so they 
attempted to pull him over, and he decided he wasn't going to be a part of that. So he just kept on going. Uh, and uh, this, uh, there's a bit of uh, there's some video out that's come out on the internet. Uh, I guess it's social media. Someone <laughs> filmed it on their cell phone. Uh, what speeds was were your your um, your your colleagues traveling at, or trying to stay up with the tractor? What kind of speeds are we talking about here? Well, at one point, one of my officers who he's about six foot seven and in very good physical shape, he almost caught him running running after him. So, <laughs> um, so it wasn't terribly fast. Uh, but um, yeah, we probably twenty five miles an hour tops, and eventually we were able to get the air out of his tires, and that slowed him down a little bit more. But he. Uh, he still didn't want to stop, and he uh, he he did ram uh, some vehicles. Uh, he hit a couple of citizens' vehicles, and then uh, he rammed one of our police cars. And um, we we realized that kind of the the typical police maneuvers uh, weren't going to work on this tractor because the tractor's so heavy. Uh, in fact, the uh, one of the police vehicles that he hit it had one of those metal brush guards on the front to help protect it. So it doesn't look like it did a lot of damage to it, but the frames bent mm. on the uh, vehicle. So it was a, it was a real challenge trying to stop such a, a heavy, powerful vehicle, even though it wasn't going fast. Now, so as you were saying, so there was a tire deflation device that you were able to put on the road as this pursuit was uh, uh, ongoing? Yes. Yeah, so we did try what we call stop sticks. And so they were thrown in front of the tractor and they did uh, partially deflate the front tires, but they didn't do anything to the back tires. So therefore, it, it probably affected his, his steering, but he was able to just keep on going. What was, yeah, so at that point, we... Oh, go ahead. No, I said, what, what was going through the mind uh, of your colleagues who were in the midst of this pursuit? Uh, you know, when people think high speed, think police chases, they think high speed generally. But this is what, which was something you describe as a low-speed chase. How long did this go on for? It seemed like an eternity, but it was <laughs> it was actually about eight and a half miles at probably fifteen to twenty-five miles per hour. And uh, the the night before, we actually did have a high-speed chase with speeds up to one hundred and sixty kilometers per hour. And then the next day, we have this tractor chase. <laughs> At, you know, very slow speeds. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, uh, did Mr. Hicks provide any explanation for his need to uh, involve, uh, first of all, doing what he did, but then this low-speed chase uh, through uh, Boone County? Well, um, he didn't really provide a lot of explanation, and he actually, he some of the funny things that he told us were that he wasn't going to be in any trouble for this because he was on an Indian reservation. Uh, clearly, he was not on an Indian reservation. Uh, so I don't, I don't really think he knew where he was. You know, there, there's, there's probably some substance abuse situations going on in this situation. Uh, so he was, uh, yeah, he was not very aware of, of uh, probably what he was doing or the consequences of, of what he was doing. I, I mean, I've just looked at the video. I mean, it's it's a bit of a sensation. I guess you must be getting a lot of interest from around the United States, around the world, uh, in regards to this uh, this chase. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's amazing to me to just see that people are that interested in something that was 
Well, I mean, this could have had a very tragic ending. I mean, he was mm-hmm. putting people's lives in danger. And then when our officers finally, you know, he just ran out of road. He turned on a private road and just ran out of road. And then he jumps off the tractor and, and pulls a knife on the officers. So this could have ended very tragically. And, and you know, my officers, they handled everything excellently and got him into custody without injury to uh, without injury to him or anybody else. So because it turned out so well, we can all chuckle and, and get a good laugh out of the, 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 the comical parts of the situation. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he, he, he just uh, – showed no no regard to the safety of the people that he was hitting their cars and as our officers were chasing he was he was waving at people and then he would turn around and he would wave at our officers with just one finger and just laughing and he he was having a great time <laughs> well i think uh, you, you hit the nail on the head that uh, he, it could have been dangerous for residents there uh, your officers and for him as well and i'm glad everything turned out okay at the end. And I really appreciate uh, you making time for us. Uh, the, the, the visual images, the very little that we've seen on social media, were, were, were quite the sight to see. And, and I know you've been up to Vancouver, and I know you, liked, uh, you like our city, and, and you made some time for us today. Really appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you so much. Yep, no problem at all. And hello to everyone in Vancouver from Boone, North Carolina. Hey, welcome back to the show. We've had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all, thank you. All right, that's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at new Canadian alcohol guidelines, which advise two drinks a week maximum. Is it the right thing to do, or just more rules from the puritanical killjoys? And in our fast-paced, always-connected 24-7 world... Could our rap panelists survive a lighthouse keepers live as light? Sorry, could survive as lighthouse keepers living in isolation? Joining us today is our regular rap panel. Leah Live is a TV reporter and radio host, and of course, Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah and Sarah, welcome. Hi, what up, Buttercup? What up? Well, all right. <laughs> Newly proposed guidelines for alcohol consumption says Canadians should stick to a maximum of two drinks per week. <laughs> I already see people <laughs> laughing. Per week in order to reduce the risk of negative health consequences. Now, the report was published by the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction. Uh, this That was this Monday, and it followed two years of research and review of more than 5,000 peer-reviewed studies and says alcohol in even small quantities can be harmful. Now, the same organization uh, last updated uh, the guidelines in 2011, which at that point they said men should limit their alcohol consumption to no more than three drinks per day, so that 15 drinks per week, while women should stick with a maximum of 10 drinks per week. Uh, Leah, let me start with you first uh, and foremost. Uh, is prohibition back? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I mean, two drinks a week? Are you kidding me? I'll be honest, Jazz, on Monday, I'm done for the week then. Like, my two are done. So, like, I have to save up four weeks in advance then. 
So then I have what eight drinks? Like, <laughs> what's this all about? I don't know. I can't do it. I I have tried, but do they know how stressful life is? I mean, really, that's my only vice. Don't take that from me, please. No, <laughs> Sarah, Sarah. Do you think it, 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 the rules are just too stringent? I mean, I know it's a there's a range, I guess, but don't you think these these rules are just too stringent? Well, you know, they used to say, you know, drink in moderation. And when I was in my 20s, that meant just getting obliterated all the time because we were idiots. (laughs) That was moderately ridiculous, so moderate drinking. I mean, you know, it's, it's, people used to drink when they were pregnant. And, you know, um, and then the, the, the advice was that you were, you could maybe have a drink or two when you were pregnant. And this is like, I'm talking 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. And some people, some ver- people's version of moderate and other people's version of moderate might be entirely different is basically how it works. I think mm-hmm. that they're just trying to scare the bejesus out of us by saying mm-hmm. two drinks a week because they know full well it's going to be more like six to eight. Yeah, yeah. at least. Uh, I mean, right? I- so if you say, <laughs> if you say 10, people are going to go, well, that means know, 20. I, I can get uh, I can get by with 14. 14 will be fine. Who will know? Yeah. I won't tell anybody. <laughs> Two people start to edge back down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we do have dry January, which I'm told is a thing now. Everybody is trying to, I guess that's, you go back to the gym in January and you, and you kind of forget about what you did in December a little bit. But uh, I mean, for you, uh, Leah, what would you think is, you know, reasonable, fair, and more importantly, <laughs> just just responsible, I guess. I mean, I, I'm trying to figure out what it is, but you know, two a week is ridiculous. But what, what's I mean, your if idea? You what's... Saw, if you saw my fridge with <laughs> all the wine, and if you saw my my desk right now that has a glass of wine on it, then uh, you'd know two is not how I'm going to go <laughs> for sure. Dude, it's not definitely it. not. This is, definitely this is not what happens it. to traffic reporters. This is what happens right? to traffic we reporters. Just drink. They end up That's drunk. It. It's just, it's nightmare. Sarah, Sarah have you heard yeah. of the, the uh, Vancouver groups are now, uh, you know, they're called Sober Saturdays. There's different groups where they get people together, but there's no alcohol involved because there's an argument that, you know, we, we've conditioned ourselves every time we go out socially, we have to have a glass of wine. You have to have a, a drink. So there's groups now popping up even in Vancouver that you can go to social events, but there'll be no alcohol served. Do you think partially this is maybe just a, a healthier society saying, you know what, we're going to push back on some of the, the sort of the built-in norms of, of, uh, of socializing? You know, it really sort of depends on, on where you're going and, and what you're doing. I mean, I live in South Surrey. A lot of my friends are in Vancouver. So if I'm going in to have dinner with friends in Vancouver, likely I'm not having anything to drink. And at very, very most, like a, uh, like a five-ounce glass of wine that you have like five and nine-ounce, because I have to drive. Yeah. And, you know, and, and the last thing I need is, you know, former traffic reporter busted for drinking on the cover of the province. I mean, I got enough problems as it is. It could be me too, Sarah. So yeah, exactly. I don't need to add that to the list. So, I mean, for me, like, uh, like sober Saturdays or, 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 or not drinking on Saturdays, if I'm not with friends, I was out for dinner in Vancouver last night. I drank ginger ale. Yeah. Oh. You know, so it's, for me, it's, it's kind of like a way of life. If I'm if I've got the girls over in the neighborhood, sure we'll all have a glass of wine. That's fine. But you're walking like thirty feet. I mean, you know, I'll make sure you all get to your doors. But like that's about 
the worry and the extent of it, right? Nobody's driving two doors down. It's not Los Angeles. So, you know, and it's normal. they always do these studies, right? One yeah. year they say drinking in moderation offers protection against heart disease. And then a few years later, they say, guess what? A little bit of alcohol doesn't decrease or increase. So it's always changing. It's like, when are they going to finally come to some consensus? Are they just and, trying and to and it's, it's, this, it's the same thing with like, go to the gym. Well, I go to the gym all the time. I drive by it. I wave at everybody inside. <laughs> I've gone. Uh, yep. I've come and gone. Nobody ever admits you go to the pub down about below. going inside. I don't go inside. It's safer for me outside. I'm I know. I, I just I think if, if you're going to release this kind of information, at least make it passable so somebody says, okay, I can try. I think that's reasonable. But two, <laughs> two a week. Two. Two I already feel like alcoholic think, now. I think it's honestly <laughs> just trying to scare people into re- reevaluating their drinking habits. Yeah. And, you know, if for some people, like I said, I mean, if you're having five, six, seven drinks a night, you know, that this will scare the pants off of you. Maybe maybe they'll yeah. curb it down to three or four. That's a start, right? Yeah, maybe That's, next year we'll I have guess. four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, coming up next, would Sarah and Leah survive as lighthouse keepers? That's next. Oh, yes! <laughs> Without wine. That's next. <laughs> yes! No. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to our rap panel. Leah Halib is a TV reporter and radio host, and Sarah Daniels is a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Well, earlier this week, the Canadian Coast Guard announced uh, that they're looking for new light assistant light keepers. Uh, instead of one position, a pool of qualified candidates is being put together to staff positions in various locations on BC's coast. Uh, now, the job pays from anywhere from 45000 to $60,000 per year, uh, but the Canadian government does say uh, the position of lightkeeper involves being comfortable working in remote areas with few people and traveling by boat or helicopter and living on the edge of the ocean. Now, earlier today, Caroline Woodward, who is a retired lighthouse keeper, uh, spoke to our colleague Jill Bennett uh, to explain what the job entails. Take a listen. So the first shift would start um, at 3 o'clock in the morning and then the afternoon person comes on at 1 o'clock and works until 11 o'clock at night. We all have televisions. We can all tune into Netflix. We aren't all like bearded, craggy hermits, you know. Well, that's a good sign, I would think. Uh, she didn't mention Starbucks in, in the neighborhood, but let me go to you first, Leah. Your thoughts. Could you survive as a lighthouse keeper? Oh, do you know me? I mean, I would, li- I would like to think. I would honestly like to think I could do this job, being in a remote location. It sounds peaceful, but let's be honest, okay? Where would I get my lashes done, my hair, my nails? I mean, who's going to do that for me? Nobody. I couldn't go out anywhere, so I'd have to live there the rest of my life. So for me, I'm out. If I can't take care of my stuff, I'm out. I'm out. Sarah, what about you? The peace, the tranquility, you know, you get to (laughs) sort of, uh, you know, do a bit more yoga, whatever it may be. It's it's, Yoga? uh, Yoga? What does she do yoga? I thought you did Driving by the gym. Why am I doing yoga? (laughs) Who are you kidding? (laughs) Any chance you could survive uh, as a lighthouse keeper? I'd I'd be out fishing for cod all the time, don't you know? It'd be fabulous. Are you kidding? I'd bring like all the books that I haven't read that I've been meaning to read. I would park my ASS in that lighthouse. I mean, I'd I'd be happier than than happy could be. As long as I could bring the dogs, I'd Netflix. Be, now, yeah, I, I don't even care about Netflix. I'd just be. I would be happy. And then, probably about the six month mark, 
I'd probably start going a little insane, and I'd start making veiled threats to management, and they would have to, like, <laughs> talking you know, to yourself. a really nice package because of my <laughs> mental health. So, you know, I'm figuring for six months, I could do it. Yeah, I could yeah. do it. Six months, would, maybe. I, by the time I came out, though, I mean, holy crap. I mean, he was talking about the hair and the eyelashes. I don't even want to think what I'd look like. I would be the crazy Le- Le- You know, people go on these retreats, two weeks, a month, month and a half vacation. That's could, fine. You could handle a re- treat it as a retreat. You could do that. Yeah, I could, I could do two weeks. I, yeah, well, definitely. the funny thing is, I say all that, but you would never find me on a show like Survivor because I'm sorry, I am not being filmed at my absolute worst when I have not seen a toothbrush or a razor blade for 30 <laughs> days. That's that's not happening. It's on my own, in my own too. devices where nobody else is seeing me, I could probably get by. Otherwise, they probably have a camera so on you, could, right? could, making yeah. sure you're doing your job. So there's that. Could you live so. without Netflix? <laughs> could you live away, uh, without media, just the, the outside no, world? No, I couldn't. I couldn't. No, I no, probably I need to actually. Have I think I need a little bit of a detox. I, I, I'm too involved watching local media and international media that I probably stress myself out too much. A couple of good books probably wouldn't kill me. Yeah. Yeah. What it's, about you, Jazz? Uh, you I don't think I'd last. I could do two weeks, three weeks. I mean, it's great. But, you know, when you're, when you're in the media for so long, you're used to being connected. I mean, it'd be peaceful. It'd be you beautiful. Yeah, you would. I I, uh, I don't even know what I'd do. I'd probably end up calling open line call-in shows myself just <laughs> with opinions on things. Even you though, could do the show remotely yeah, from the lighthouse. There yeah. you go. <laughs> Could you as soon as the boat goes by, you're out there waving frantically, right? Like, hello. As a, that would and, be and the least. Many of, maybe the listeners don't know, but but actually, Jazz right now is in Colombia. Yeah. He's not even in British Columbia. Oh, he's he's just in regular too. Columbia. Oh, could you imagine? I mean, just uh, today, with lead story, three boats went by safely. <laughs> you know what? It, exactly it could happen. Breaking news. It could happen because I literally, I did a Zoom course on Wednesday. Yeah. Because it's, you know, real estate Zoom course. And our instructor was in the Philippines. I uh, kid you not. He was oh leading the Yeah, so anything, you can be anywhere right now. So you can move to the Lighthouse Jazz and like, you could rock it. I, I did this show uh, from my home uh, for a month and it was killing How'd me. How'd that go? Oh, it yeah. was fine. Technically it worked fine. But at one point I had the show on the, and the uh, UPS driver came and dropped the package off and he waved and through, like, through the window. <laughs> he was listening to the show. But like, That's I was third so crazy. I have to navigate through rush hour. I have to navigate through rush hour getting home. I have to be at the office. I, it was painful working from home. Everything worked. That was part of the problem. But it was like, no, I, I just have to be downtown. I have you to do this. Spaces, I do. Right? I do. Yeah. I couldn't last. I couldn't last at home. <laughs> and I had my own little office and everything was working fine. I'm not going to last in the lighthouse. It's just, it's just. Was your family, you was your family trying to get rid of you is what you were oh, really Yeah, my wife say. definitely. She was very. Yeah, <laughs> giant slingshot <laughs> aimed at the front door. And I know. The only advantage was you could do the show in your pajamas, which I did a few yes. times. <laughs> that was yeah. about it. Which no is how knows. I'm doing the show right now, by the way. You so. don't want to see everybody. Sarah right now. Exactly. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much for your time. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. You, you too, guys. guys. Too. All right. That is Leah Live. She's a TV reporter and radio host. And, of course, Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey, author and broadcaster. They are part of our rap panel. I always enjoy my conversations with them. We're talking about whether or not they could survive as lighthouse keepers. I think the answer is no. I love their conversation. Obviously, about the True Drinks a Week recommendation that came out this week as well. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.